Marilyn Yalom grew up in Washington, D.C. and was educated at Wellesley College, the Sanborn, the Sorbonne, oh, Sorbonne, Harvard, and John Hopkins. She has been married to the psychiatrist Irvin Yalom for more than 60 years and is the mother of four children and the grandmother of eight. She has been a professor of French and comparative literature, director, director of an institute for research on women, a popular speaker on the lecture circuit, and the author of numerous books and articles on literature and women's history. Her books have been translated into 20 languages. In 1991, she was decorated as an officier de Palm Académique, pardon my French, by the French government. She speaks today about her book, The Amorous Heart, an unconventional history of love, which has been called, quote, a tour de force, a thumping romp through the history of hearts, a scholarly and fresh approach to art history, and from book list, this history of the heart will woo romantics and iconographers alike. Please join me in giving her a warm welcome. such an honor to be here again at the Athenaeum and such a pleasure to be back in the Boston area uh, where I went to college and started graduate school and still feels very much like home. So thank you very much for coming out today. This book had its origins in a visit to the British Museum in 2011. And at that time, I was taken to see a collection of medieval artifacts that had been buried sometime around 1500 and had not been discovered until 1966. So among these medieval artifacts, there were gold coins and there were pieces of jewelry and one of the pieces of jewelry, this heart-shaped brooch made in France, caught my attention and I turned to the medieval curator who was with me and I asked, when was that heart shape invented? And being knowledgeable, um, James Robinson, said, oh, it was current by the middle of the 14th century in France. And that was the moment. It was one of those eureka moments where I said to myself, I've got to find out more. So I started my book with that question, uh, when and where and under what circumstances was the heart icon created? And a second question, how long has the heart been associated with love? It turned out that the second question was much easier to answer than the first. And so I'm going to start with that question. How long has the heart been associated with love? And then I'll turn to the first question, which turned out to be much more complicated. The Connection between the heart and love has been around verbally long before the loving heart was represented visually. That's often the case. 
writing and speech, speech and writing create an idea that gets transmitted from century to century, and eventually that idea uh, becomes visualized. So as far back as ancient Egypt and Gre ancient Greece, poets, philosophers, and physicians all agreed that love was lodged in the heart. And among the earliest known Greek examples, the poet Sappho, who lived during the seventh century BC, wrote poems that identified the heart with love, like the following, love, shook my heart like the wind on the mountain troubling the oak trees. Other Greek poets and philosophers and physicians all agreed that the heart was linked to our strongest emotions, including love. Hippocrates in the fourth century BC believed that all emotional and mental functioning, including human intelligence, was situated in the heart. Plato also recognized the dominant role of the heart in the experience of love, as well as the negative emotions of fear, anger, rage, and pain. But he argued, ahead of his time, that the brain was the seat of intelligence. So already, over 2,000 years ago, uh, philosophers, physicians, were debating where our emotions and where our intelligence are located in the body. Aristotle expanded the role of the heart even further and granted it supremacy in all human processes. Not only was it the source of pleasure and pain, but it was also the central location of, for the immortal soul, the psuche or psyche. And these ideas would be debated endlessly by successive philosophers and physicians for centuries to come right into the, I would say, mainly into the, through the 17th century. But by the time of the Romans, the association between the heart and love was already commonplace. It was already a cliché. Venus, the goddess of love, was credited for setting hearts on fire with the aid of her son Cupid, whose love darts aimed at the human heart <clears throat> never missed the mark. And the Romans also had a strange belief about the fourth finger of the left hand. This was one of the discoveries that I and my husband found most amusing. They believed that the heart was connected to a small vein in, that extended from the third finger of the left hand, and it was called the vena amores, the vein of love. Quote, it was thought, therefore, to give to this finger, in preference to all others, the honor of the wedding ring. And that's by a uh, second century Latin author, Aulus Gellius. And this belief hung on throughout the centuries. It got picked up in uh, the Christian world, and by the Middle Ages, it was part of the marriage liturgy in Salisbury, England, which instructed the groom <clears throat> to
to place a ring on the bride's fourth finger, quote, because in that finger there is a certain vein which runs from thence as far as the heart. So our own practice of wearing a wedding ring on the fourth finger goes back to the Romans via medieval Christianity based on an incorrect knowledge of human anatomy. Now, uh, let me turn to the visual representation of the heart figure. The Amherst heart took on special significance during the 12th and 13th centuries in the feudal courts of Provence, in France, in Germany, and northern Italy. Troubadour in the south of France and Trouvert minstrels in the north celebrated a new form of love known as fin amour that we today call courtly love, though the original term meant refined love or perfect love. And that brings me to the first question concerning the iconography of the heart. And what I discovered with great difficulty was that, is that the figure we recognize as a heart had a long history before it became a symbol for love. These non-heart hearts were taken from nature, from leaves, flowers, seeds, and were merely decorative and weren't expected to represent either a heart or love. And here are some of the earliest examples. The earliest is found on a coin from around 500 BC that was made in ancient Libya. The shape on the coin was not intended to represent a heart, but a seed from a species of giant fennel plant called sylphium. Sylphium was highly prized in antiquity as a form of contraception. And the city of Cyrene, C-Y-R-E-N-E, -E, in ancient Libya, had grown so rich from exporting it that Cyrenians put the outline of the Sylphium seed on their coins. Uh, I could speak to you at length about this subject. There's been some very good research on the Sylphium seed and its use in antiquity, and I do go into that at more length in my book. The next oldest example that I found, and I'm sure there were others in between, but this comes from a silver drinking bowl from Persia made during the 6th century. The vessel pictured here is embossed with four female figures, three musicians and one dancer. You, you can't see the dancer in this image. And each one is encircled by vines and grapes and separated from the others by a row of non-heart hearts <laughs> that were probably inspired by leaves and related to wine, since this is a drinking vessel. Other examples can be found on several early medieval manuscripts of a work known as the Commentary on the Apocalypse by a Spanish monk named Beatus. 
In these various Beatus manuscripts, we find our familiar heart figure, but it seems to have had no relationship to the heart or love. For example, this white horse, which is one of the four horses of the apocalypse from the book of Revelation. So after several years of looking at these figures, these images, um, I asked myself what would have happened to this shape if any one of these meanings had taken hold. For example, had the figure become strongly associated with the silphium seed in ancient Libya, it might have become the sign for contraception. Or in ancient Persia, it might have become the sign for wine and winemakers. Or in the 10th century Spain, it might have become a brand for horses. Why not? The, the double lobes do suggest haunches. But none of these meanings stuck to the scalloped figure we call a heart. I like to think of these non-heart hearts as figures in search of a meaning. And that meaning was found during the High Middle Ages when the ideas of courtly love began to circulate in Europe. A central tenet of courtly love was that the lover would pledge or give his heart to only one lady and promise to be true to her forever. The song poems from the minstrels in Provence and northern France were all punctuated regularly with such terms as loving heart, yearning heart, breaking heart. You can imagine how much fun I had uh, looking through the poetry uh, of the 12th and 13th century and finding the word heart over and over and over again and in different contexts. For example, uh, Bernard de Ventadorn, who was in the court of Eleanor of Aquitaine after she relocated to England, uh, he began one of his song poems with the assertion that, quote, singing has little value if the song cannot come from the heart. And the song cannot come from the heart if it does not have perfect love amour within it. Bernard claimed that he sang better than any other troubadour because his heart was consumed with love and his commitment to his lady was nothing less than global. Quote, she has taken my heart. She has taken everything, myself and the entire world. So here you have this overlap between the heart and love, they become synonymous. Courtly love was supposed to have a positive influence on the lover who strove to prove himself worthy of his beloved. The troubadour Arnaud Daniel maintained that the love within his heart was a force that would make him, quote, improve and grow better. He insisted that such an extreme love had never entered into anyone else's heart or soul. And it was in this context, this context that promoted the heart as one's most loving self and as one's best self, 
that the first visual heart icons symbolizing love were created. This particular image comes from a French manuscript called The Romance of the Pair, circa 1250, uh, a French manuscript. What you see is a character called Sweet Looks, Regard doux, or du regard, one of, one of those terms, who is actually carrying another man's heart for safekeeping to the woman in the image. And she's not even the woman for whom it's ultimately intended. So it's a very complicated plot. But what interests here is the iconography. The object in Sweet Look's hands is not yet the scalloped heart. It has the shape of a pine cone, an eggplant, or a pear. Yet medieval viewers would have immediately recognized it as a heart offering, l'offre du coeur, such as they had already encountered in song and story. This heart was shaped as a pine cone because that's the way medical authorities had described it since the time of the Greek physician Galen in the second century. If you look at the medical texts from Galen onward, the heart is always described as pine cone shaped. Now, someone in an audience recently said to me, well, why didn't they just look at a human heart? Because dissection was outlawed. And dissection, human, di human dissection did not come back until the 14th, 15th century, and it was at the pleasure of the Pope. Uh, some of the first dissections uh, of the human body took place when Leonardo da Vinci had the opportunity to see them and to record them, and even more so when Vesalius in the 16th century uh, was allowed by the Pope uh, to dissect the body of executed criminals. But to get back to the pine cone-shaped heart, <clears throat> here's one that I particularly like. It's carved in ivory on the back of a French mirror around 1300. Here the man kneels before his lady <clears throat> and offers up his art while she raises a large hoop above his head with one hand and touches his arm with the other. Now, this heart, again, bears only a distant resemblance to an anatomical heart. But viewers in the past recognized it immediately as an, the offering of the heart. And we today probably would wonder, what is that he's holding up? However, in a post-Freudian era, we have little difficulty seeing it as a phallic symbol especially in relation to the circular hoop held in the woman's hand above the man's head. Medieval artists, without the benefit of Freud, knew exactly what they were doing, and the symbolism would have gotten picked up by their contemporaries. The pine cone-shaped heart was not limited to the depiction of secular love. It also found its way into religious works of art, such as this fresco in the Scrivani Chapel in Padua by uh, Giotto. 
and he chose the theological virtue of caritas, charity or love, offering her heart to God. Giotto's caritas influenced many other Italian painters and sculptors whose works still grace the churches and museums of Italian cities. And about the same time, and this is why I say the development from this pine cone heart, pine cone shaped heart, to the bilobed pointed heart took a little time. It took about almost a hundred years, and you see variations on this theme. For example, here's one by Francesco da Barbarino, and it's called, it's from a manuscript called The Triumph of Love. Here, hearts are strung across the neck of a horse carrying Cupid on its back. And from a distance, these hearts may appear more like triangles, but if you look closely, you can see that each has an indentation between two rudimentary lobes. Cupid races off victorious with the hearts pierced by his deadly arrows. Uh, a lot was going on in northern Italy at the beginning of the 14th century. Another example during this period is Giotto's allegory of chastity found in the lower church of San Francesco at Assisi. Um, some of you may have been to the church. I'm just wondering how many of you have been to Assisi and seen the church. Well, you wouldn't have found this in the upper church, but if you go to the lower church that some people miss, uh, you would have found, this is just a detail from the allegory of chastity. And here the hearts are worn by Cupid himself and not by his horse, and they're slung across Cupid's nude body they look like pieces of fruit hanging by their stems. This Cupid, identified by the word amor, A-M-O-R, if you look closely, between his clawed feet, has the added feature of being blindfolded, suggesting that love is blind. That is to say, irrational and foolish. The uh, great art historian Erwin Panofsky has written about blind Cupid in a very important article of, from the 1930s or 40s. Most of the heart images that emerged in Italy during the early 14th century had religious themes. What we do not find in Italian paintings of this period are positive images of the amorous heart offered by one human being to another. And for that, we need to return to France. A gorgeous French manuscript titled The Romance of Alexander is now in the Bodleian Library in Oxford. And it contains the first indubitable bilobed harp that was to become a universal symbol of love. Here we see a woman holding a heart in her hand that she has presumably received from the man facing her. She accepts the gift of his heart while he touches his breast 
to indicate the place from which it has come. We know who painted this min miniature, Jean de Gris, he was a Flemish painter, because he signed his name at the end of the manuscript with the date 1344. And from that point on, the heart icon became visible not only on the pages of manuscripts, but also on numerous luxury items such as jewelry, that piece, piece, that heart you saw at the beginning of this talk, ivory carvings, weavings, and tapestries. These were not confined to France or northern Italy, but they were produced in Germany and eventually uh, all of Europe. I put in my book this example from the medallion tapestry dated 1390 and now in the Stadt Museum of Regensburg, Germany. Um, if someone, some of you have seen my earlier book, How the French Invented Love, in that book I have a picture of a gorgeous French tapestry where a man is offering his tiny little heart to a woman. It's very sophisticated. It's in either the Cluny or the Louvre in Paris. But in Germany, <clears throat> they too were coming up with images of the heart offering, sometimes not quite as sophisticated as that example of the French tapestry I mentioned. This one consists of six rows of medallions with four medallions to a row, and each one is encircled by German phrases, by a German phrase. This medallion shows Minnekernigan, the, the German goddess of love, on one side and a youthful man on the other. And they're holding up a winged heart between them. She extending an arrow into the heart and he holding it up with his fingers. And to avoid any confusion about the meaning of this scene, the text around the medallion says in Old German, Mittelhochdeutsch, my heart suffers from love's beans. I should say that the concept, the notion, the idea of the heart, the loving heart that suffers, is, if not paramount, at least very, very prominent in the 1300s, the 1400s, the 1500s. Uh, if you're going to love, you're going to probably suffer. And the Germans and the Italians are very good at this, both in their visual works and also in their poetry. The idea that love strikes you with the deadliness of an arrow is obviously traced back to Venus and Cupid, though in this reincarnation, Venus has acquired uh, the German hallmarks of courtly love, uh, and specifically in the form of um, Minna, which in German means love, Königin, queen. Now, I'd also like to talk briefly about how the heart was viewed in religious circles. In the Judean Christian tradition, the religious heart grew upside along the secular heart. I called my book The Amorous Heart, but in a way it's a bit of a misnomer because I include um, the religious heart as well, and I include also forays into 
the burial of hearts that are separate from the body, and uh, a lot of other things. But I was wedded to the title, The Amorous Heart, and my publisher was willing to give me that as long as I took the so his subtitle, An Unconventional History of Love. Uh, so, starting with the Bible, the heart was understood to be the chief organ for receiving the word of God and for connecting humans to the divine. Hebrews emphasized the heart's moral and spiritual significance, as in Proverb 4.23, above else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Among the church fathers, the one most associated with the heart was St. Augustine, who mentioned it more than 200 times in his confessions, and frequently as a term for one's innermost self. As he put it in uh, one of his most quoted affirmations of faith, quote, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless, until it finds its rest in thee. Perhaps more than any other church figure, St. Augustine was responsible for claiming the chaste heart for Christians and for discrediting the lustful heart associated with secular love. Um, there's a very good article about St. Augustine, I think it was in the New Yorker several months back by Stephen Greenblatt, one of your own. So, the sacred heart of Jesus was an outgrowth of medieval mysticism. Oh, sorry, <laughs> gotta skip that one. Um, this example is only from 1900, an embroidery from Ghent. But the origins of this sacred heart go back to the cults uh, in medieval mysticism, the cults of the sacred heart of Jesus and the immaculate heart of Mary. And such saints as Saint Anselm, Saint Bernard, and Saint Gertrude the Great of Helfta all experienced a mystical connection with the sacred heart of Jesus and advised fellow and sister Christians to find their way to Jesus's heart through meditating upon the wound in his side. Many of the visions that Gertrude the Great, who lived around 1200, uh, that she recorded sound as if they could have been written for secular romance instead of as spiritual encounters with Jesus. Uh, for example, she wrote, open to me the inner recesses of your heart and show me the nuptial, nuptial contract that my heart has entered into with you. And the overlap between the offering of the heart or the exchange of heart between the secular and the romantic, what we call the romantic or fan amour, uh, it's, it's plain to see. You find in the mystics a kind of sensualism 
that's very similar to what you find in the secular texts of this period. By the late Middle Ages, the Sacred Heart of Jesus had become an accepted symbol in the Catholic world, and it was often pictured bursting into flame and encircled with a crown of thorns. Now, when the Reformation came along, and many Catholic icons were burned or destroyed, surprisingly, the heart was saved. And it was saved by none other than Luther, who decided to use it as a part of his personal seal. Luther constructed his personal seal from a red heart placed within a white rose with a black cross at the center. And in a letter of 1530, he explained his choice of these images. The black cross symbolizes Christ's death. The red heart symbolizes faith, and the white rose symbolizes belief in the resurrection. With Luther's approval, the heart appeared in Protestant churches and publications stretching from Germany and France and Switzerland as far as Hungary and England. English Protestants, and especially Puritans, were made ever conscious that, quote, God's eye is principally upon the heart. That was uh, from a 17th century pastor named Thomas Watson. And another 17th century English clergyman wrote a verse treatise titled The School of the Heart. He'd actually taken it from a Catholic text, but nonetheless, uh, he presented the old theme of exchanging one's heart with Jesus or God. And this one illustration in the book represented this act visually. The engraving titled The Giving of the Heart shows a woman offering her heart to God before a mirror held up by a winged youth. Not quite Cupid, not quite an angel, but uh, an ambiguous creature whom we recognize, uh, at least unconsciously. So this Protestant theology asks the Christian to turn inward to examine his or her, in this case, her own heart. And the heart hung on and thrived in the Protestant world. It was taken to uh, colonial America by Pennsylvania Dutch. And of course, you know that Dutch is a deformation of the word Deutsch. Uh, it was, they were Germans who brought uh, the heart largely to colonial America. This is a um, birth certificate, birth and baptismal certificate, which has a, a hand-drawn and hand-lettered uh, image with a large heart dominating the center, and it has the names of the parents and the newborn child inside. Uh, long before there were birth and death registries, this is how individuals recorded their births and deaths and baptisms. And when secular fraternal organizations became popular in the 18th century, um, they used the heart as among their primary 
symbols. For example, the Masonic eye, which represents the symbol of God's all-seeing presence, is is used by was used by Masons, is still used by Masons today. Uh, but also, the heart stood for love and particularly for brotherly love. Uh, I had a great time researching the heart in the 18th and 19th century because it just spread and proliferated in uh, colonial America and in the new United States. Here's one from another fraternal organization, the IOOF, the Independent Order of Odd Fellows, and they adopted the heart in hand as uh, their official emblem. It represented the dictum that whatever the hand goes forth to do, the heart should go forth in unison, which, put another way, is that the hand should be guided by the heart. But by far the most popular use of the heart in the U.S. and then in France was to decorate cards linked to Valentine's Day on February 14th. Uh, this is a French card, by the way. They picked it up a little bit later. Actually, they were among the earliest to write Valentine's. Uh, and then it, but then the English took it over and the Americans really made it big time. And I do have a chapter on Valentine's in my book because there were well, there was indeed a St. Valentine added to the Catholic roster as early as uh, 496. But it wasn't until the Middle Ages, in the context of Anglo-French courtly love, that the first St. Valentine's Day texts were composed. Uh, the French and the Brits have a little contest as to who really invented the first Valentine's car. Uh, because as early as the 1380, Chaucer, 1380s, uh, was referring to St. Valentine's Day in his poetry. And he wrote, for this was St. Valentine's Day when every fowl cometh there to choose his mate. I've changed the English a little bit to make it a little more modern. Chaucer associated St. Valentine's Day with birds as the harbingers of springtime and love. And February 14th is a little early for springtime, but that caught on. And then you find, it's so interesting to see how one poet writes something and then the, all the other poets follow. So right through the next decades, you have both English and French Poem, poets referring to St. Valentine's Day and to the birds who come to choose their mates. This idea caught on in both England and France, and from the 15th through the 17th century, it was a big day for love in both countries. I describe in my book festivities that took place in Tours, France, during the early 15th century as described in a letter that was sent to Charles d'Orléans. Charles d'Orléans, as you may know, was captured by the English and imprisoned for 25 years. This was in the early uh, 15th century. And he's credited with writing the first proto-Valentine to his wife, 
Again, it's a manuscript in the British Library, and it begins, Ma très douce Valentine, my very sweet or my very gentle Valentine. So the holiday caught on, and writing greetings caught on. And by the 17th century, it was a very costly affair in England because not only did you send notes, but you were supposed to buy presents. And often you had to give a present to someone who was chosen by lottery. We have a wonderful, wonderful diary entry of Samuel Pepys, February 13, 1661. He wrote that he and his wife dined with their friends, Sir and Lady Batten, and they picked the names of their Valentines by lottery. Pepys was obliged to buy for the Batten's unmarried daughter uh, seven pairs of gloves, six ordinary pairs and one that was embroidered. And Lord Batten, however, ended up buying for Mrs. Pepys a half dozen pair of gloves and a pair of silk stockings and garters. The holiday caught on in those two countries, in England and in France. The earliest English, French, and American Valentines were little more than a few lines of verse handwritten on a sheet of paper. But by the 18th century, they were also embellished with pictures of hearts and birds and flowers. And some were very complex and contained puzzles, acrostics, and rebuses, such as the one that's on the cover of my book, The Amorous Heart. It's a, an 18th century um, valentine that folds over and uh, it's, it's quite complicated <laughs> to figure it out. But then came the commercial valentines appearing in England at the end of the 18th century and a flux of man-made valentines during the 19th century in both England and America. Um, the Industrial Revolution all but obliterated the handmade variety, and today approximately 200 million paper cards are sent in the U.S. alone in addition to the inestimable number of e-cards carrying images of hearts, flowers, cupids, and loving couples. Now, I don't know whether this is come, gonna come through very clearly, but that is I Heart New York, um, which was created in, uh, <clears throat> in 1977 by Milton Glaser. He created the famous logo that extended the meeting of the heart beyond the romantic and the religious to the realm of civic feelings. And I should say, because I just read in the paper this morning that Robert Indiana had died, and that this logo owes a lot to Robert Indiana's L-O-V-E with uh, the O tilted. Uh, it's a wonderful, long, obituary in the Times this morning that some of you may want to look at. So what we had seen verbally with Indiana 
uh, was then adapted visually uh, by using the heart as the image of love. Since then, this logo has been picked up in numerous cities and countries around the world, and I have a carrying bag that says, I heart Paris. Uh, lastly, this is a picture of the first emoji created in Japan, 1998-1999. The original set of emoji were designed by Shigetaka Kurita, and five of them were hearts. There you go, we got a, two sailing hearts, a broken heart, a heart pierced with an arrow, a red heart. I only see four here. No, on the right. On the right, oh yeah, 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 that one up there. And of course, it's such a familiar emoji along with the smiley face that it is now a truly a universal symbol. It's probably the world's most familiar symbol. We add hearts to our emails, texts, and letters. We send valentines adorned with hearts to those most dear to us. And we continue to give or receive pieces of jewelry in the shape of hearts, just as they did in the 14th century. So in the course of writing this book, I asked myself why the heart icon symbolizing love has attained such global popularity. I found myself drawn to various aesthetic, philosophical, and psychological interpretations. For one thing, the heart icon's perfect symmetry speaks to our sense of beauty. Moreover, its two equal halves merged into one convey the philosophical idea dear to Plato that each person seeks to be joined with his or her soulmate. And on an unconscious level, the round lobes do evoke sexual images of breasts and buttocks. So I think that if this figure had remained mainly decorative and not taken on the meaning of love, I don't think it would have ever attained its universal appeal. It's not only the beauty of the figure itself, but also the meaning, the meaning that it immediately imparts. And today, in a world scarred by so much hatred, it serves as a reminder of the ageless assumption that only love can save us. Thank you very, very much.